It's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, it winds from Genesis to today. Welcome to week 38, and we're continuing on down the road in the book of Daniel. We'll pick up the story in Daniel chapter 4. We'll finish the book of Daniel, and by finishing the book of Daniel, we'll also be finishing the section of scripture called the Major Prophets. We'll transition into the 12 Minor Prophets. We'll read the entire book of Hosea, the entire book of Joel, and then the first half of the book of Amos. So we've got a lot to cover this week on the Points of Interest podcast. You're going to notice that the book of Daniel is actually divided into two halves. Chapters 1 to 6 hold together pretty well. It's more of the narrative and uh, the stories about the prophet Daniel. And then chapters 7 to 12 are an, a series of apocalyptic visions and, and prophetic oracles that this prophet Daniel sees. And what's also interesting about the book of Daniel is that it's written in two languages. Chapters 1 and then 8 to 12 are written in Hebrew, while chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Now, the language of Aramaic was the common language of the ancient Near East during this time, from about the 6th century through the time of Christ. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic in his everyday life as he was traveling on the earth. What's interesting about this is that the stories about Daniel plus the first vision are in Aramaic. And some scholars have suggested that the purpose behind this on Daniel's part in, in how, how he put it together is that these are the sections that would have been open and available for all people to read, even people possibly in ancient Babylon. But the introduction to the book, chapter 1, and the interpreted visions in chapters 8 to 12 are all written in Hebrew. And this might imply that these portions are for God's people only to read because only the Jews would have read Hebrew. The visions of chapter 7 to 12 explain a, a series of empires that will follow Babylon. There'll be the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then the Greek Empire will be divided into four pieces. And there is also some allusion to the Seleucid occupation of the Promised Land and the rise of Antiochus IV, 
who is now famous for placing a statue of Zeus right in the holy place in the temple. And this eventually led to the Maccabean revolt that's described in the uh, apocryphal books, the first and second Maccabees. But all of these events are alluded to in the book of Daniel. The whole tenor here kind of is keeping with the Hebrew prophetic tradition that sees these historical events, all these kingdoms that Daniel sees, laid against the backdrop of the final great battle and God's conquering of all of these human kingdoms and the establishment of his kingdom. Now, of course, we don't know all of those details and how that all worked out, but there are many prophecies in the book of Daniel that have already been fulfilled. So we'll want to keep that in mind as we move through the book. And in light of these visions, I thought it might be a good time to say a few words about the nature of apocalyptic literature, because this is a form of literature that is fairly unfamiliar to us. It's just not something that we have in our culture. Now, we have forms of literature in our culture today that wouldn't have been familiar to the ancient world. A classic example would be the genre of literature called comic books. You know, if I say the word comic book, we have an image that comes to mind of what constitutes a comic book. You know, there might be squares around the progress of the story filled with illustrations and people talk with bubble boxes above their head and the illustrations are generally flat two-dimensional pictures that tell a story. And this we might characterize as being a genre of literature. It's, today it's sometimes called a graphic novel. But that would have been a very strange form of literature to somebody in the ancient world. Well, this is somewhat like how apocalyptic literature is strange to us today. So we have to do a little bit of homework to try to understand how to read apocalyptic literature in the way that it was intended to be read by the original author. Now, we should make it clear that apocalyptic literature is not just limited to the Bible. Rather, the biblical authors used a form of literature that was out there in their culture and then harnessed that for their own theological purposes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the people in the ancient world would have been familiar with how to read apocalyptic literature properly. One of the interesting features of apocalyptic literature is that it seems to come out of periods of persecution or great oppression. And we see this both with the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the church was undergoing severe persecution uh, under the Romans at that time. And that's where John gets his vision. So we see also in the book of Daniel and also parts of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah have tidbits of apocalyptic uh, passages. And these are all during times of great difficulty for God's people. And there's a great concern in each of these cases as to whether God has forgotten his people. And the nature of the apocalyptic literature is to reassure God's people that he is still active within history itself. He is still intervening. He is still taking care of his people and taking history into a violent, radical end where the righteous will triumph and the evil will be punished. Now we need to make sure that we understand that apocalyptic literature is different than 
prophetic literature. Prophecies and apocalyptic visions are different entirely, and sometimes people think that they're sort of all the same thing, that apocalyptic literature is prophetic. Sometimes it can have traces of prophetic elements in it, but overall it is a different genre of literature. Now, one of the features of apocalyptic literature is that it's presented in the form of visions and dreams, and the language, quite frankly, is often cryptic. Uh, it has hidden meanings, and it's highly symbolic. Now, the original audience probably would have understood the symbolism much better than we do because they were much closer culturally to the original time and place. So we have to work a little bit harder to understand those symbols. But it's, it's not just a straightforward interpretation of the text. It's very little that's straightforward about interpreting apocalyptic literature. And often these visions contain forms of, of fantasy and fantasy creatures and creatures that, that don't really exist or they have creatures, real creatures, doing things that seem fantastical. And so, you know, you're going to encounter things like beasts with multiple heads and multiple horns and and we don't necessarily experience these kinds of beasts in our everyday life but they were highly symbolic and meaningful to the people in the ancient world. So as you're reading through Daniel's apocalyptic visions you're going to want to keep in mind that you're not going to understand everything. There, There's a, a great cultural distance between us in the 21st century in America and the ancient Near East and so we would have to do quite a bit of homework to really understand what's going on there but in the in the big picture what we want to look for is that God is standing behind the scenes of history and he's working it out for his ends and in the end God will preserve a people and they will survive great persecution and and tumultuous times but the wicked will be punished. God is bringing history to his desired conclusion. Once we leave the book of Daniel, we're entering into a new part of our journey, and that is the book of the Twelve, or the book of Minor Prophets. And first off, we have a very intriguing minor prophet, and that is the book of Hosea. Hosea was a, a prophet who lived in the north, probably Samaria. So if you remember back to the part of our journey back in 2 Kings, this would have been around the time when the northern kingdom was still intact, but they were experiencing great condemnation for their unfaithfulness to God. And here we have the motif of the marriage analogy that we've been mentioning on several previous podcasts really lived out in a real life situation. This is one of those prophets that gets a call from God that they have to do something, make a symbolic act to show the people the depth of their unfaithfulness. And in this case, God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute. And this becomes a symbol for Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant. Now, there's some parts of Hosea you may find difficult to read. 
it's it's hard because sometimes he's just so emotional. He wears his heart right on his sleeve. He's got a lot of passion for what he's writing about and just oracle after oracle, irony upon irony and such passion. It doesn't always stay kind of on topic. He's he's sometimes a little bit all over the place, but under the direction of the Holy Spirit, I can see that that even when he's veering off track a little bit, it's because his passion is there and he's trying to wake these people up to the depths of their sinfulness so that they will repent and return to God. It might be interesting as you go through to just put a little circle around all the words that are used in the book of Hosea to describe the sins of Israel. There are many adjectives and and descriptions that Hosea uses. Maybe just put a circle around them. Think about them. They're so vivid in the word picture that they paint of what kind of wife Israel was to God. And then finally this week, we'll be starting the book of Amos. Amos was a shepherd from around the Bethlehem area. And he's ministering during a very unique period in the southern kingdom. And that's when there is a a brief period of economic prosperity and some degree of political strength where Judah is flexing its military muscles a little bit. And I guess I find Amos interesting because this prophet not only talks about Judah's unfaithfulness to the religious practices of the Mosaic Law, but also to the practices of helping the poor. When we get to the ministry of Jesus, he's going to highlight the fact that the Jews have missed the primary motivation behind so many of the laws. It's about how to love our neighbor as ourself. And when our worship of God is neglected, then our caring for our neighbor also falls. Amos describes the socioeconomic injustices in Judah, that they were not taking care of the widows. They were not taking care of the poor in the ways that the Mosaic Law had prescribed. Also, Amos condemns the nations that surround Judah for their failure to be just and to take care of the poor and to treat each other with dignity and what we call these days human rights. There seems to be a a certain level of assumption that the moral principles of the law There are certain aspects of the law that are for everyone, that are universal, and that when a nation undermines those universal moral principles of God's law, they will be subject to his judgment as well. So as you read Amos, think about that, and, and maybe even think about in our own modern context, what are those universal principles of loving our neighbor as ourself? And how are we as a nation doing with loving our neighbor as ourself? And how are we as Christians doing at loving our neighbor as ourself? And are we opening ourselves up to God's judgment at some point because we are not taking care of others the way that God wants us to? Well, that's all for now. We're almost done with the Old Testament. We're, we're in the Minor Prophets. It's 
not too difficult to get through the minor prophets. It's one of the easier parts of the Old Testament. And just remember all those events that we read back in the book of Second Kings are what stand behind the events of the minor prophets. So chronologically, it's a little confusing because we've already read that history long ago. But this is just a, another slant. It's God's perspective on those events back in Second Kings. We're almost to the New Testament. It's all downhill from here till we get to the book of Matthew. And we'll see you next week as we continue our journey through the book of the Twelve. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Go to Galilee, Shechem, Colossae, and Jerusalem City. It's not a pretty sea. Mount Nebo, Sidon, or Jericho. Antioch, Caesarea, don't forget, go got that sausage turban. The flames and agony won't yield. Get hip to this timeless hill. Trip.